The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. January 15, Martin Luther King Jr. Day edition of the PFT PM Podcast. Maybe posting a little bit later than usual today. Apologies in advance. Had some other things going on. One thing I had going on, interview of Vikings safety Harrison Smith. He was not on the field, obviously, for the fateful play that delivered victory for the Vikings. But he was in the building. He was paying attention. He had a vested interest. We talked to him about that issue, the outcome, how you get past it, how you focus on the task at hand, getting ready for the Philadelphia Eagles. If you haven't heard, the Eagles won on Saturday, Vikings win Sunday, Minnesota at Philly on Sunday, 6.40 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Before that, if you haven't heard, Jaguars at Patriots, 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern on CBS. Get you up to speed on some of the things you may have missed. No official format for today. No five-down territory. I'm just going to talk for a while. I'll play the Harrison Smith interview. I'll talk some more, and then I'll answer your questions. That's the format. I said there's no format. I've already lied. How many more times will I lie? Hopefully none that you know of. Only one way to find out. Here we go. The coaching jobs are beginning to unofficially fill up. And these teams continue to make a mockery of the rule that says you can't hire a coach before his current team is done playing. They need to just change the rule. Because here's what's going to happen. Teams are going to continue to enter into these agreements. They're going to tell all the other candidates you don't have the job. See, maybe you can't tell officially the one guy that you are hiring that he does have the job. But if you tell every other candidate that he doesn't, The message is pretty clear. That's what came out over the weekend as it relates to the Lions and Matt Patricia, the Patriots defensive coordinator. And now the same thing happens today. You go to NFL.com, right? The league-owned website. And the league-owned website trumpets the idea that Josh McDaniels is going to be the next Colts coach and Pat Shermer is going to be the next Giants coach. And why not just allow these deals to be tentatively done because they're already tentatively done before the season ends. If the reality isn't going to mesh with the rule, then change the rule to meet the reality. That's all I ask for. That is the reformed lawyer in me that is wishing and hoping that there would just be a scenario where the rules mesh with the reality. Because what's going to happen is eventually the NFL is going to decide to whack a team that goes a little bit too far in quote-unquote hiring a coach before it's time to officially hire the coach. So, Patricia to the Lions, McDaniels to the Colts, Shermer to the Giants, and it will all be officially official when those teams are done playing. And there's a chance that the Vikings and the Patriots will meet in the Super Bowl. So those three jobs will be open. There was a sense that the Cardinals were waiting for someone who was still coaching. But if you take Patricia, McDaniels, and Shermer out of the mix, I think the Cardinals may be SOL. I don't know where they go from here. I'm still surprised Jim Schwartz never materialized as a serious candidate for the Giants job. It very well could be that the fact that word got out that Schwartz was a favorite, the favorite, multiple reports, that may have turned off the Giants. That may have been the test. Can Schwartz keep his mouth shut? Not. I can't name my sources. I mean, we were one of the first ones to peg Schwartz to the Giants. I own it. It's true. It's what I was told. It's what the thinking was. It's what the expectation was. 
something happened. Something happened in Tennessee. And didn't we see this coming last week? In order to eliminate any distractions moving forward, Mike Malorkey will be the coach of the Titans moving forward. Well, what in the, does moving forward mean? Apparently means one more week. And everything else is semantics. They offered an extension, right? Minimum wage. Right? Here's your extension. None of it's guaranteed we can fire at any time. Here's your extension. You'll park your car 500 yards from the facility. Here's your extension. Your bathroom privileges are revoked. You have to hold it until you get home. Here's your extension. The only food that you'll be allowed to eat at the cafeteria is peanut butter and jelly. That's your extension. You give him an offer that is designed in a way that you know he's going to reject it. Or you tell him the extension is contingent upon you gutting your staff. And it used to be that more coaches were willing to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to fire my staff. I'm loyal to my staff, so you have to fire me. It doesn't happen all that often anymore. Look around in this cycle. The coaches that stayed, they're basically rebuilding their staffs. It's ridiculous to see how some of the various coaching staffs out there are being remade and rebuilt. So I don't know that the loyalty is there. And here's the other thing, and I saw this point raised by our good friend Ross Tucker. I say that somewhat sarcastically, good friend. The main unpaid celebrity endorser of the ball cannon, he, he said, and this makes sense, in order to demonstrate loyalty to one member of the staff, you ultimately do a disservice to all of them by getting everyone shit-canned. He didn't say shit-canned. And you know, I'm really confused now about my feelings on that word. I've heard it a thousand times on cable news in the last four days. Sometimes they bleep it, sometimes they don't. Different networks handle it differently, but everywhere you go, you're hearing that word. Is it going to be like, when I was a kid, fart and suck, you never heard those on TV, and then all of a sudden they were okay? Hell and ass, you didn't hear those on TV, then all of a sudden they were okay? Are we finally expanding after 30 years to shit? There really hasn't been a word that you regard as a swear word, as a word you can't say. Right? Piss was one of the original George Carlin, seven words you can't say on TV. Then you start hearing piss on TV. How does this happen? Have we normalized? Is that the commander-in-chief's contribution to the culture? He's normalized the use of the word shit? I don't know. Bastard. Never used to hear that on TV. Anyway, what are we talking about? Oh, the Titans. Some profanities likely emerged in Tennessee today when... Mike Malarkey parted ways. Mutual parting. It's always a mutual parting. It's always, it's always a joint breakup. And look, if I'm Malarkey, the way they screwed him around over the past few weeks, I'd want out too. He admitted that it's weighing on his mind, his status. They come out with that statement last Sunday that was worthless. Moving forward. In order to eliminate distractions moving forward, he's our coach moving forward. Okay, moving forward. One week. We've moved forward. Now we move past Mike Malarkey. And I think that the vacancy in Tennessee went a long way toward getting the tentative deal done between the Colts and Josh McDaniels. The unofficial official deal, or officially unofficial, whatever the hell it is. Now the question becomes, where does Tennessee go? Maybe Mike Vrabel. If the Colts hadn't gotten Josh McDaniels, Mike Vrabel would have been the coach in Indianapolis. Steve Wilkes on the list as well. Where did the Titans go? Who's out there that can come in and coach Marcus Mariota? Because, see, it's not just the head coach. You need somebody who shows up with a plan. That's what the interview process is about. You come in. You have a binder of information. Here are the plays we're going to run. Here's the system we're going to have. Here are the coaches I can bring. Here are the coaches I will bring. If it's a defensive coach, you better have an idea, and you better have a strategy, and you better have a proposal for getting the most out of Marcus Mariota. So we'll see the direction the Titans search goes. But I think maybe that Titans job popping up today made the Colts hurry up and get something done with Big Daniels before they end up with a tug-of-war. And you know what? The tug-of-war may have already happened. That's the one thing we learned as a result of the John Gruden deal. The deal was done. These deals get done because it's the same agents. Oh, and Bob Lamont, who represents Gruden and Jack Del Rio, awkward, represents Josh McDaniels. At least he doesn't represent 
Well, I was going to say Mike Malarkey, but that's not the job he's taken. There's no job. There was no job filled in Indy. Although, would it surprise anyone if the foundation was laid for McDaniels to be recruited by the Colts before Chuck Pagano was fired? Not that he was sticking around anyway. The Vikings are sticking around in the postseason thanks to that play for the ages yesterday. And you could make the argument. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I've been following the NFL since I was a little kid. And I was a little kid. Really, for me, the moment that I realized, and I've told this story before, but what the hell? There's a chance out there someone hasn't heard it. In 1972, December, the Steelers had been a long-suffering, downtrodden franchise. They're in the playoffs against the Oakland Raiders. And back in those days, the days before electricity, well, there had to be electricity because we had TVs, but the days before cable, Everybody had a big giant antenna on top of their house. This big metal contraption. It's like a flat, double-decker flat contraption with a pole in the middle. And it was attached to the top of your house. And it would pull in whatever was coming over the free airwaves. ABC, CBS, NBC. And then there was always some local UHF channel that was syndicated shows. And PBS, that was it. Five channels. You used to always say three, three networks, five channels, if you're lucky. And if you're really lucky, you would get channels from other cities. So you get CBS, the town you live in. Maybe you get CBS up the river. Maybe you get NBC down the river the other way. And the NFL would black out within 75 miles of each home stadium all games, regardless of whether or not the game was sold out, which was asinine. I think it took some threats from Richard Nixon, who was the president at the time, to get the NFL to change that because he wanted to watch. And I think it was the same year, 1972. He wanted to watch Washington games in the playoffs, and you had to attend them. Now, if you lived in the city where the visiting team's from, they'd play it. But if you're in the home city, they wouldn't. So, long story bearable. For the Immaculate Reception game, for whatever reason, our house was the only one in the neighborhood that got a station that was beyond the 75-mile bubble that had the Steelers game. And I'm assuming it was an NBC station. NBC had the AFC deal at the time. CBS had the NFC deal. And whatever NBC station it was, not locally, not within the bubble, we were getting that station. So as a result... Every adult in the neighborhood was in the house. And that's a big deal because my mom had a thing about the whole shoes in the house, the whole people sitting on the furniture, right? The entire outer area of the house was reserved for a special occasion that never really happened. Although this ultimately, in hindsight, was a special occasion. Because when the ball goes off of Jack Tatum, not Frenchie Fuqua, because in those days, if it hit an offensive player first... No other offensive player could catch it, which was a stupid rule in hindsight. It hit Jack Tatum. It caroms. There's still questions to whether or not Franco Harris got the ball before it hit the ground. He scooped it up. He kept going. All these adults start yelling and screaming like they're kids. I mean, it was the moment that we've seen play out through all the cell phone videos over the past 24 hours. But with like... 25 adults, right, in my house where I am all the time. And I'm a kid. I'm sitting there playing with my Hot Wheels. I'm not paying attention. I was seven. When that happens, like, man, this, 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 this football thing that makes the grown-ups act like not grown-ups. Like, when you're a kid, like, the, the world is divided between kids and grown-ups. And the grown-ups are just like, like these, like, they're all, like, they're all your parents, they don't have fun. I mean, when you're a kid, you don't know. They don't. You don't know they go out and drink and do all sorts of crazy things. You just think that they're, you know, they, they look like adults. They just, they don't have fun. They're irritated all the time. They got to do things like take out garbage and cut grass, all the stuff you don't want to do, run the vacuum. And and all of a sudden, all these people who typically have it all together and are pissed off all the time, are yelling and screaming. And. I think of that moment, that was divisional round back in 1972. Now, 
at that point, the Vikings had already lost Super Bowl four, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, any type of a memorable game. It was a smothering. Every time the Vikings have been in the Super Bowl, it's been a smothering. Chiefs in Super Bowl four, Steelers in Super Bowl nine. Even though it was sixteen to six, the six points the Vikings scored was off of a block punt that was covered in the end zone, I think, and a missed extra point. I mean. It, 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 the, the Dolphins smothering the, the Raiders. They actually scored 14 points against the Raiders, which, hey, oh, wow, double digits for the Vikings in a Super Bowl. But but the heartbreak was 1975. That was, I think, based upon my limited cognitive abilities between the ages of 8 and 13, I thought that was the best Vikings team of the 70s, the one that didn't get to the Super Bowl. The one that finished 12 and 2. That team in 75 started 10 and 0, lost by, if I believe correctly, and this was a big deal late afternoon game on CBS, and I still remember it vividly. 31 30, I think, was the final score. I remember reading about it in the newspaper the next day. So the Vikings went from 10 and 0 to 10 and 1, and then the season ended, if I recall correctly, and there's a chance I don't, with a Saturday game in Buffalo, and it was snowing like crazy. And the Vikings won that game. And it was a combination of pretty good offense. Like Chuck Foreman that year was coming into his own. Man, this really makes me seem old, doesn't it? But anyway, the Hail Mary game was a shock. Vikings were up. Cowboys get in position. The deep pass to Drew Pearson, who pushed off of Nate Wright. Paul Krause in deep coverage, who I don't know what he was doing. Why he wasn't over there to try to prevent... Drew Pearson from scoring. But that was the dagger. That arguably, for Vikings fans, hurt more than the Super Bowl losses because it was so sudden. It was a game that, you know, there's so many of those games back in those days that were 14 to 10 and 10 to 6 and 7 to 3. And, you know, I think it was 14 10 at the time. And that was the that was the killer. And that was the first of several. There have been so many of them, I forget. There was the and I'm just going to work backward here, and I'm probably going to miss something. The 2015 Blair Walsh missed field goal, hooked left. The 2009 NFC Championship game, this is not Detroit. Brett Favre rolls right, throws left, Tracy Porter intercepts, and then the Saints drive right down the field in overtime. Hey, we contributed via that game to the entire NFL, and I say we because I had been at the forefront of yelling and screaming for a change in the overtime rules. That caused the rules to finally change. I thought it was going to happen the prior year in the Super Bowl. Steelers, Cardinals. I was rooting for overtime and a one-drive field goal for either team to win it so they would finally change the rule. That finally happened. And I get blamed for that. I don't like the rule as it is. I think that there should be two positions guaranteed regardless of whether you score a touchdown or not. I think the other team should always have a crack at the ball. But anyway, and I think it should only be in the postseason. I don't like it in the regular season. But anyway, that was 2009. Then before that, what was before that? Before that was 2003. Paul Allen mentioned this. I had forgotten about this one. Our good friend Josh McCown, in only his second year in the NFL, he found, I think it was Nate Poole at the back of the end zone to knock the Vikings out of the playoffs on a rule that now is gone. It was the push-out rule where if you caught a ball at the boundary and... The defender pushed you out before your feet got down. It was a judgment call by the officials whether or not you would have gotten your feet down if you hadn't been pushed. That's the one rule change over the past 40 years that doesn't favor the offense. That actually favors the defense because now you push the guy out, he doesn't get his feet down, it's it's not a catch. The judgment was that Poole would have gotten his feet down, so Cardinals win that game. And 2000 was the just complete and total dismantling by the Giants of what was a very good Vikings team. And and but for some of the outcomes in the regular season, the Vikings would have hosted that game, specifically that he did what game? The Monday night game, Antonio Freeman and Chris Dishman in overtime. Freeman ends up with the ball untouched on the ground, gets up, runs in. You take that game away, and I know you have to go back and play the season forward from that point, but you just flip that one outcome. The Vikings host that game against the Giants, and the Vikings presumably would have at least you know, been within 41 points of the Giants if that game had been played at the Metrodome. And then was 1998, the Gary Anderson missed field goal, hadn't missed a kick all year. 
Vikings were up by seven. Anderson makes it. They go up by 10. And there's no way that the Falcons can tie that game up. Of course, Anderson missed it. And the Falcons drove down. They scored. And at least it wasn't the first drive of overtime. But still, the Falcons scored in overtime. And that was that. Before 98. What was before 98? 87. 87, the NFC Championship game, after the Vikings had stunned the Saints and the 49ers, two superior teams, the strike year. The Vikings backed into the playoffs that year. They lost to Washington on a Saturday, and they needed, I believe, the Cardinals to lose in what was their last game in St. Louis. And they did. I think they lost to the Cowboys that year. I don't know. Hell, I don't know. I think I know, but I don't know. But anyway, the Vikings got hot, and there was a chance to tie it up with a throw to the end zone, and... It didn't work. And then before that, I don't know if there was anything before that other than the Hail Mary game. I'd have to research it. But the Vikings had never been on the right side of a moment like that. They'd always been on the wrong side. And you develop a sense that this is just a team that's cursed. And it's just it's just the way it is. This team is going to be the foil. This team is going to be the, the has-been, the, the sad sack that always gets screwed in moments like that. And I think in that one moment yesterday, and I mentioned the Immaculate Reception to finally make my point. The Steelers lost the next week to the Dolphins at home. Back in those days, back before electricity, they didn't give you home field advantage in the playoffs based upon record. Home field advantage was awarded by rotation. Imagine that. How unfair that is. I complain now that in the wild card round, a division winner that could be eight and eight or seven and nine gets a home game over a wild card team that's twelve and four. Think about how unfair it was in 1972, and thank God they changed it. That the Miami Dolphins, a team from South Florida that went undefeated, had to go to Pittsburgh. I got this right here in my record and fact book. The Steelers were eleven and three, and the Dolphins were fourteen and zero. The Dolphins beat the Browns twenty to fourteen. When Pittsburgh beat Oakland 13 to 7. And then it was Miami 21, Pittsburgh 17, a four-point game in Pittsburgh for a team that was 15 and 0 at that point. So the point is, the Steelers lost the next week, but there's still a statue of Franco Harris making that catch at the Pittsburgh International Airport. And I think part of it is the name, part of it is the way it happened. It was so unusual. There's never been another play like it. But this one's close. I think that whatever they end up calling it, and I've heard it referred to as the Minneapolis miracle, the Minnesota miracle, the Hail Millie, because of the lifelong Vikings fan who's nearly 100 who was at her first playoff game ever. I don't know. Maybe a good name is going to pop up at some point. But the Diggs route... And none of them, you know, the Minnesota, I don't know. Using miracle seems like it's it's taken because of the Music City miracle. The, you know, the, you can't use the catch, the catch and run. I don't know. Maybe there's a better name for it. But regardless, no matter what the Vikings do from here. See, and I'm finally bringing this point home after way too long. And at least I admit it. Does that make it any better? Probably not. They hand out a Super Bowl trophy every year. They don't hand out moments like that every year. So no matter what happens in Philadelphia this weekend, they can't take away what happened on Sunday from the Vikings. No matter what happens in the Super Bowl, if the Vikings make it, they can't take away what happened. That moment's permanent. That moment is etched into the Minnesota sports history book. And it balances out, maybe, the Hail Mary game. Maybe. And, and it's a sign. And who knows where it goes from here. But maybe it's a sign that now the luck is turning. That now it's going to go the other way. That now, now, the Vikings are going to have three or four more of these moments. And maybe they're going to have one of them in Philadelphia. Maybe they'll have one back in Minnesota against the Patriots or the Jaguars. I've seen some quotes from some Vikings, and this is predictable that in order to validate 
what happened on Sunday, they have to now win the Super Bowl. It's kind of like, you know, when the U.S. hockey team beats Russia. If you don't beat Finland two days later for the gold medal, what was it all for? I, I just don't know that that's true. I, I guess from a Vikings fan and employee and player perspective, it's better to say that you ruin that moment by losing if that gives you the extra motivation to win. I don't think it does. I don't think it does. In fact, the moment probably resonates more into Vikings history if they don't win on Sunday because then there's nothing that trumps it. What's better? A 10-point win over the Eagles where the game's decided and they hold on and they don't blow it down the stretch because Nick Foles isn't Drew Brees? You, you give the Vikings a 17-0 lead over the Eagles. Nick Foles is not bringing the, the Eagles back. There aren't many quarterbacks that were going to wipe off that, that deficit. So let's say the Vikings win, just to throw out a score, let's say the Vikings win 20-10 to 10 over the Eagles, and they get to the Super Bowl for the first time since 1976. Okay, if you're a Vikings fan, it's great back in the Super Bowl. But, but the moment from the prior week is still feels bigger. And then if the Vikings win the Super Bowl, well, that's a bigger moment, right? Well, but, but what if it, it isn't an exciting finish? The moment. And, and I guess the moment from yesterday gets woven into, maybe that's what it should be called. Maybe it should be called the Minnesota moment. Maybe that's what it should be known as. The Minnesota moment. Because I think that captures everything about it. Because everybody else has had their moment. When are the Vikings going to have theirs? I'm going to call it the Minnesota moment from this point on. I don't care what anybody else calls it. Minnesota moment is the name of it. All right, I'm going to move on. Let's do this. Since we're talking about the Minnesota moment, I am going now to share with you the conversation I had earlier today with Harrison Smith, the Vikings all-pro safety. Here is my conversation from earlier this afternoon with Harrison Smith. Welcome back, and as promised, joining us now, a guy who's been a central figure in the Vikings defense for several years now. He is all-pro, first-team all-pro safety, Harrison Smith. Harrison, welcome to the show. How are you, pal? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for some of your time. At what point after last night did you feel normal again? Um, still working on it, I guess, uh, but, <laughs> you know, that's that's the great thing about uh, about this game is, you know, when um when games in like that and players make plays like Case and Diggs is at the end there. Um so we're uh, obviously very excited but still have work to do. And and let's go back to that that final drive by the offense. They get the ball back with twenty five seconds to play. As that drive is starting, the Saints just kick a field goal to go up by two. What's your overall mindset? Uh I mean as a defensive player I was I was disappointed because we we had a chance to get off the field there on on fourth down and we didn't didn't get it done so we felt like felt like we kind of let the let the team down there um but um you know like I said um the the guys on offense came and uh you know pulled it together and 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 got a win for us You mentioned that fourth down play and really that was that was it that was the moment on that play were you surprised by what happened? How close to what you expected was what they actually did? Um, you know, you're not exactly sure what they're going to do there, but you know, they have a future Hall of Famer and Drew Brees back there, so he uh, he played lights out in the in the second half, and um, so I mean, that's that's kind of all I got to say on that one. When they got the ball with a minute 29 to go after you guys took the lead with the field goal, are you thinking, oh, God, this guy's got too much time, given his history, given his skills, given everything we've seen so far this half? It's, go it's going to be hard to bottle him up and keep him from getting into field goal range. Um, I mean, we, we understand the reality of the situation and who he is and what he's capable of. But, you know, we still have a lot of confidence in, in what we're going to do. And uh, like I said, you know, we had him, had him in a good spot and we didn't take advantage of it. What did you say when you sacked him in the first half? Um, I was glad that we kind of pushed him back for the field goal, but I was I was really hoping to get the ball out there just to make sure there wasn't wasn't going to be any points on the board. Um, but it ended up working out, you know, getting them uh, in a harder harder position for a field goal that they missed. Did you say anything to him though? Talk any smack to, no. to the as of today, thirty nine year old Drew Brees? Do you call him Mister Brees? 
Um, no, I was so worried about the ball. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, didn't have time to to have a conversation with him. There's so much talk of Tom Brady as he's playing at the age of 40. You've seen Breeze before. Your impression of a guy who is 39 years old out there doing the things he does? Yeah, he's uh, you know he's set an all-time record this year for completion percentage. Um, you know he's he's still putting that zip on the ball and getting it out, going through his reads, um, and really you know making making it a really potent offensive attack that's hard to hard to stop. Okay, so the last drive starts on offense. I'm going to get back to where I was when we started. 25 seconds, team gets the ball. Where's your position on the sideline? What do you do? Do you have a superstition? Do you have a rally cap you wear? What do you do in a spot like that where the offense has to drive the ball and the game's in their hands and all you can do is is spectate? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not really a guy to have the, the rally cap or the superstition, just uh, – you know, I know we have a bunch of playmakers. Um, you know, it happened to be, obviously, Case is going to be throwing the ball, but, you know, Diggs making the play there and, you know, guys giving Case time to get it out. But we have playmakers all across the board. So, you know, I was just hoping one of them would make something happen, and and that's what, that's what they did. And I think most people who are watching the game, 10 seconds left, Vikings have the ball on the 39. There's no set of facts. There's no computation that you can come up with that allows the Vikings to get the ball into field goal range. They're going to guard the sideline. You don't have enough time to get the ball out of bounds. You don't have enough time to go up and clock it. Um, when it actually unfolds, were you watching it happen? How, what, what were you doing? I was watching the video board um, just to get a better view of it. And I, I knew he had a shot at catching it, and I thought he'd just get out of bounds real quick and we'd get a shot at a long field goal. Um, and then he just kept kept rolling, and uh, you know that was that's the end of the story. What what did you do? Who were you with? Who'd you grab? Who'd you? Where, where did you go? I think I saw you down in the tunnel in the aftermath of all of that. Yeah, you know, most of us just kind of chased down Diggs and went to go celebrate with him because you know it was a uh, you know time ran out and and we all saw that time take off. We didn't know you had to kick that or you know snap the ball for the extra point, so we were just all you know went down there to celebrate with him. Any anxiety that there was going to be some glitch, that there was going to be something to screw all this up? Oh, he stepped out of bounds. There's replay review. There's a flag maybe out there that someone hasn't noticed. What, did that go through your mind at all? Yeah, it did. I was running on the field. I think I dropped my helmet. I was running on the field. At some point, I think I like looked back as I was running to go down to the tunnel just because I was like, man, this, you know, there's got to be something. Um, <laughs> but luckily, luckily, it was a clean play. Before the snap, though, I mean, in your own heart, do you have any realistic optimism, or are you just thinking, "Here we go, this is it"? It's just a question of whether the ball gets thrown out of bounds, whether it gets knocked down, whether it gets picked off. We got no chance of getting this thing into field goal range. Um, I thought we had obviously a, an outside shot at that. I had zero thought of us scoring a touchdown, um, so that that's what I think was most shocking to everybody. I think the Saints had zero thought of it as well based upon their defense. I don't know how closely you've studied their formation, but it's the defensive guy. When you look at what they were doing, first of all, let's start with Marcus Williams, the guy who tried to make the play on Diggs. Can you tell what he was trying to do there? Because ultimately, he, you know, he made a move shoulder first and he missed. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really positive. I, you know, I've been watching our film, so um, you know, I don't know exactly what they're running. But, you know, it's... As a safety, you know, I feel for him. Um, obviously, I'm happy to be on this end of it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't really know what to say on it. What would you guys have run in a situation like that? I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're never going to be in a situation like that. Hey, Maybe not. Could happen next week. It happens. But, but, uh, but I, yeah, I never nobody, thought that would happen. Don't you put somebody back deep? In a spot like that? I mean, the last guy was Marcus Williams, and he dives at Diggs while he's in the air, and there's no one behind him. And I think that's what shocked everyone when he turned and ran. We just assumed somebody would be there. There's no one there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's always easy to talk about it after the fact. Um, but at the time, you're thinking, you know, we got to keep him out of field goal range. We got to at least get him out of bounds. So, I mean, there's so many different things you're thinking, and I don't know. I'm not a coach. I don't know. But it's always easier. You always hear everybody talk about what you could have done. Um, and that's, that's how it goes in football. 
You were part of the team two years ago, that epic outdoor game, bitterly cold, the chip shot field goal that went wide left. Were, were you thinking at all on that last drive that if we get in position for a field goal here, God, I, I can see it going wide left already. Were you, were you thinking that, that, that it was just destined to not work out no matter what happened? No, I really didn't. I didn't even consider that at all. Um, What's funny is it was kind of like it's kind of like the exact opposite feeling of of that game. Uh, just you know the ending of it because you know obviously the way things turned out in both both instances. Um, so you know it's it's good to be on this side of it. You you have been with the Vikings for six years now, um, but you wear the jersey number of a guy who was a cornerstone of the Vikings defense in the '70s, Paul Krause, and he was part of the Hail Mary play the Dallas Cowboys managed against the Vikings in 1975 and and there have been other instances in the past not just Super Bowl losses playoff losses heartbreak after heartbreak how conscious are the players on this team of the misery that the fan base has endured over the last 50 years um you know I don't I don't know if we grasp it you know quite quite like the fan base does just because we you know we're not we don't we didn't really live through it all um but you know, people people are always tweeting at you and telling you, you know, how much this means to them and everything. And 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 we definitely get that. And um, you know, it obviously it means a lot to us too. Um, you know, not not only as Vikings but as competitors. And that's you know that's that's who we are. Um, so we uh, you know we we grasp it to a degree, I guess. Your fellow safety, Andrew Sandejo, left with concussion yesterday. How does the defense change without him as a practical matter? Um, I mean, Anthony Harris can jump in and he can fill in for me or, or Sandejo, you know, at a moment's notice and, and, and do a great job. Um, you know, Sandejo is always that guy that's, you know, he's very physical, you know, very smart player and, you know, covers up a lot of things that, you know, could happen. Um, and but Anthony does does those things well too. So you know we have we have a lot of faith in in um, all the guys that can come in and play. Harrison, given everything that happened yesterday, the aftermath of it, the play, the emotion, the excitement, how do you set that aside and lock in your focus on the Eagles coming up this Sunday? Uh, I mean, there's no magic formula. You just you know my my approach is that you always live in the moment. You know, enjoy. Enjoy what happened last night and then put it behind us, move forward, because it's going to be all for nothing if we don't, you know, keep going and um, and get better from, from what we did this past week and, and move forward. So that's that's our plan. After the bye week, when you guys were 6-2, and two, you had several tough road games, Washington, Detroit, Atlanta, Carolina. How much do those road games in the, in the meat of the regular season help prepare you for going on the road in a game where everything's riding on it? Super Bowl berth is hinging on the outcome. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think those will help. Um, it's always good to get those experiences. And, you know, a few we've you know, played a few night games, you know, later games. It's just, it's just the schedule is a little different. Uh, you might, you know, just kind of you're kind of sitting around in the hotel a little bit longer. So just getting, kind of getting your routine down individually of of how to prepare for those games. Uh, you know that those those can help us in this this week's game. The Eagles are embracing this underdog role. They, you guys are favored in the game coming up on Sunday. They've got the dog mask. They, they've got a chip on their shoulder because of the perception they're not as good without Carson Wentz. How do you find a way to, to counter that and, and view yourselves as the ones who essentially are the underdogs? You're going into their building. You're going into their place, but you're going to be favored. How, how do you manage those emotions and those mindsets as you get ready for this one? Um, I mean, honestly, we don't. We never talk about if we're favored or not favored. We don't. We don't really care about that. We just care if we win. So um, it'll be the same approach for us. Well, we wish you all the best, Harrison, as you get ready for the game that's coming up. It was a game for the ages on Sunday, but uh, more work to be done. And uh, we'll let you get back to it. And thank you, and hope to talk to you again down the road. Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Thanks again to Harrison Smith for some of his time. I just don't know how you readjust. I don't know how you get past it. I don't know how you go forward with what happened on Sunday. And I think you just have to accept the fact that you're not going to be able to, that it's part of everything you do as you move forward getting ready for the NFC Championship game. But we'll see how the Vikings do 
and we'll talk plenty more about the NFC game in the days to come. We'll try to do a PFTM podcast every day this week in anticipation of the conference championship round. The Jaguars-Steelers, a lot of different things we can say about that. And I've got some thoughts about the Jaguars matching up against the Patriots. And I think that, that it's encouraging, maybe. From a defensive perspective, yes. I don't know if offensively they can do it, but we'll see. And Tom Coughlin, the executive VP of football operations in Jacksonville, he has coached two teams that have beaten Tom Brady and Bill Belichick in the Super Bowl. Now, neutral site, a little bit different than going into the dragon's lair and trying to kill the dragon. And you need clutch quarterback play. Could they get it from Blake Bortles? I mean, they get it when they need it. They don't ride it. They don't rely on it. They don't get it when they want it. They get it when they need it. But that's a topic for later in the week. For now, some of the post-mortem on the Pittsburgh Steelers. And there really is a coaching issue there in a variety of ways. Mike Tomlin is fundamentally different from Bill Belichick. And because Tomlin won a Super Bowl in his second year and then was in the Super Bowl again just two years later, I think he gets a pass on a lot of the nuances of the job. I remember when Terry Bradshaw came out and questioned how good of a coach Mike Tomlin is and, and he got ridiculed for it. I probably called him out. I kind of probably went, how dare you? Because I've always been all in with Mike Tomlin. At least I was early on. Because I, I was pushing for Tomlin when the winds were blowing in the direction of Russ Grimm. And as legend has it, Art Rooney II wanted Grimm and Rooney wanted Mike Tomlin. And ultimately, Dan Rooney who at the time was higher on the pecking order, he got his way. Here's my article from December 27, 2016. Terry Bradshaw's Mike Tomlin criticism was bizarre, gratuitous, inaccurate. Uh, hmm. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Gonna have to go back and revisit this. Because here's what we've learned this year. And I was very troubled by the interview with Tony Dungy when Mike Tomlin decides to talk not just about one upcoming game with the Patriots, it was still three weeks away, but a second one that had no guarantee of ever happening. That's something that Bill Belichick would never do. It was the first thing Rodney Harrison said when we found out what Mike Tomlin told Tony in the interview. Rodney said, Bill Belichick would never do that. You never look past an opponent. You're always focused on the next opponent. Always, always, always. Remember when James Harrison had joined the Patriots and someone asked Bill Belichick prior to week 17, how can having a guy like Harrison help you prepare for the Steelers. And I think some of this was deliberate from Belichick, but his response was, what are you talking about? We play the Jets this week. But that's the way the guy thinks. And that to me, that to me, and I remember saying it at the time, that's a concern. Now, I thought the Steelers would benefit from having the Jaguars come to town on Sunday because I thought that would force them to focus on a team that has beaten them rather than peek ahead to the Patriots. But I think they were still peeking ahead to the Patriots. And I think, and this goes back to 2014 season, when the Broncos lost at home to the Colts in the divisional round, Demarius Thomas told me at the Super Bowl that he thought some of his teammates did not want to go to New England the following week. He knew some of them did. They didn't want to go. They knew what was waiting. I think the Steelers knew what was waiting. I think the Steelers have seen this movie enough times. They can talk tough, and they can huff and puff and say we want the rematch. But deep down, when your big brother's kicked your ass in ping pong every time you've played, and and you're trying to earn the right to play him again, and you know what's waiting, are you as focused when you know what's waiting? And beyond the mishandling of the whole circumstance by Mike Tomlin, man, some of the decisions yesterday. That fourth down call, Dan Fouts said Todd Haley may be thinking twice about that. Mike Tomlin's part of that process. He's part of that process. Beyond just deciding to go for it, he's part of that process of of, uh, deciding what the play is going to be. So the onside kick... 
the poorly executed onside kick. I got to look at the film on that. I heard something about the onside kick today, which would maybe explain why it didn't work, why it worked as poorly as it did, why it didn't work, why the ball got kicked into Tyler Matikiewicz. I want to check out the video again before I write write it up. But there may be an explanation that, that conjures memories of the Week 15 game against the New England Patriots. There may be. And then the thing that really bothers me, the Steelers had the ball on the Jacksonville 47-yard line with 58 seconds left. Ben Roethlisberger found Martavis Bryant for a 42-yard gain to the 5-yard line. 47 seconds left. The Steelers had the ball on the Jacksonville 5. First down, intentional grounding. 10-yard penalty, loss of down, and 10-second runoff. Now they're down to 32. Short pass to Antonio Brown. 11-yard gain to the Jacksonville. Four clock is ticking. 10 seconds left. By the time that play finished with an incomplete pass, there were only four seconds left. And then came the throw to the end zone for a touchdown to make the final score 45-42. You know what? Why don't you just kick the field goal? First and goal from the five. Or try one throw into the end zone. Or you know what? After the first one, when you lose 10 yards and a down and 15 seconds of clock time, kick the field goal then. You're back at the 15. Kick the field goal then. And then try an onside kick again and then try to get the ball into the end zone to force overtime. That was extremely poor management, extremely poor clock management. But just another example of the differences between Bill Belichick and Mike Tomlin when it comes to the very important reality of situational football. All right, there's plenty more time this week to talk about these various issues. I've got to answer some questions now and then wrap this thing up. We'll see what questions you may have here. Unwrapping the present opening the package, seeing what may be here. Oh, my God, 49 of them. All right, let's get to as many as we can. At Sergio D, he's trying to figure out. Uh, now, wait, wait a minute. Sergio D has inside information. You know, one of the one of the guessing games, the latest guessing game for PFT PM, what do I drive? And... Sergio D has nailed it. And and Sergio D is is uh using the Seinfeld pool, the the Bosco logic when Kramer figured out George Costanza's secret password. Yes, Sergio D, you are correct. Anybody who is interested in finding out Sergio D's guess yeah, listen, I, Sergio, this must be, I wonder if this is like a ghost account of Barstool Big Cat. I'm going to have to do some research here. It's somebody who knows me. Somebody, because you nailed it. You nailed the model and the specific model type. Somebody's cheating. I'm going to have to get rid of these games. Or, or Sergio D is no longer qualified to answer these questions. But Sergio D, the first response to the question on Twitter Four questions for the PFTPM podcast. You win. Terry Gensler wants to know if it rains in Philly this Sunday. To what team does that give a bigger advantage? I think it's a wash. I, I think the Vikings are, are built to play in the slop. They're not the typical dome team. The field was not in great shape on Saturday, and it was dry. I mean, it could be a sloppy old-school running game. And you know what? I think it... It probably does benefit the Eagles now that I think about it. They're bigger, they're stronger, and they got more running backs who can pound the ball and pound the ball. So probably the Eagles if it rains on Sunday, especially if the field is not in great shape. At Chad K. Harris, what does Darren Gant enjoy writing about more, Cooter or Uranus? Yes, that you have to pay close attention to PFT to get that one, although I don't think it's much of a much of a leap if uh, – you're not familiar with some of Darren Gant's writing preferences. At Sham God, is it possible? Mr. 8 and 8, Mr. August will also claim credit for having two former quarterbacks playing in the NFC Championship like a certain politician wanting credit for the sun rising. 
Uh, I think you're talking about Jeff Fisher, the former Titans and Rams head coach. I mean, look, the bottom line is he had Case Keenum and Nick Foles on the same roster. Now, it's not that both of these guys have become franchise quarterbacks. Case Keenum much closer to one. And Case Keenum was not bad. I wrote something over the weekend about how Case Keenum had some good performances in the past. I don't know how he got lost in the shuffle in the offseason this year. How in the world did that happen? Case Keenum, one year, $2 million with the Vikings. The Bears gave Mike Glennon $15 million a year. How in the world did that happen? At B. Flofo Show, I thoroughly enjoyed the 12 times you roasted Chris Sims on PFT Live today. Hashtag underage drinking. Yeah, he was talking about being at the 2000 NFC Championship game, drinking beer, and I did the math real quick. It's like, hey, Sims, you are under 21 drinking beer at a Giants game. At some days, the dog. What kind of preparations get done on U.S. Bank Stadium that take multiple weeks? This is a question in reference to the fact that the NFL was hoping that the Vikings wouldn't host the NFC Championship game because the NFL has already taken control of U.S. Bank Stadium. And what happens is security. That's the main thing. Security, security, security. Establishing the perimeter, sweeping the building, making sure that everything is under control. And the NFL takes full and complete control of the stadium. And they get all of the cameras in place. They get everything ready. But it's it's about security first and foremost. And look, they would have gotten it done in two weeks. But three weeks avoid some of the overtime, makes it a little bit cheaper, and allows them to do it the right way. I'd rather they have the more time. And it worked out well. I'm sure the Vikings would have rather hosted the game. But that's one of the risks you have. And they have to have that plan every year because every year the Super Bowl is played in a stadium that an NFL team plays in. And if that team ever makes it, and it's amazing that this is the closest any NFL team has ever come to making it, the conference championship round. If the home team for the Super Bowl ever makes it, they got to be ready to go. they got to be ready to let that team host the game and go from there. At Edarn 55, what do you see the Bills doing with their first-round picks, quarterback and O-line or skilled position players? I think they're going to package their two picks in the 20s and trade up for a franchise quarterback. I think the moment they put Tyrod Taylor on the bench during the season, that was the indication they've decided he's not a franchise quarterback, and that was the moment where they decided they're going to get one, and and they've seen how many teams have traded up. They were the one of the teams that traded down so the Chiefs could trade up to get Patrick Mahomes. I think they're going to trade up. They're going to roll the dice. And I think that by the time they came to that conclusion, they already realized that they were comfortable with one or more than one, maybe more than one, maybe more than two of the guys who are going to be available. And I think they're going to make a move for a franchise quarterback. Because if you have a true franchise quarterback, you have a Jim Kelly. You don't have to worry about scratching and clawing and maybe getting lucky and needing a fluke play from Andy Dalton to get you into the playoffs. You are in every year. The question is, are you the one seed, the two seed, etc.? At B-Flow, for show, if the Vikings face the Patriots in the championship, can we just call it the situational football ball? Yeah, I mean, look, Mike Zimmer, commitment to situational football, Bill Belichick, and you give Belichick two weeks to get ready, he's going to be tough to beat. Tom Brady, still firing on all cylinders, he's going to be tough to beat. And real, You look at this Final Four, this is the easiest path the Patriots have ever had to a Super Bowl. Win. Now, the Jaguars may have something to say about that. And so I was talking to somebody on Sunday night who believes that the Jaguars are too young to realize that they should be intimidated by the Patriots. And maybe the fact that they practiced against them for a week back during a grueling training camp, maybe that helps the Jaguars not be intimidated. Maybe they got a taste that week of, of the fact that they can compete with the Patriots instead of having the Patriots inside their heads the way the Patriots are inside the Steelers' heads. At B-Flow, Fauchot is the... PFT Barnes still alive after that Jaguars win. You know, I think a lot of the Steelers fans, because we had some at the at the uh, barn yesterday, I, I think that that they had some of the same mindset as the Steelers. They knew what was coming next week. So the fans I was around yesterday, they they didn't seem to be as upset because I think they knew that they just would have delayed the inevitable if they'd won. That the Patriots were waiting and the Patriots with a better team, and the Patriots are better coached, and at home, the Patriots are going to find a way to pull it off. At Eric Russell, 85, the likelihood that Josh McDaniels backtracks, interviews with the Titans, and takes the Titans' job. Look, he can do anything he wants. There's no official deal. But the thing is, the agents who represent these teams, 
once you tell someone we have a deal, if you start backing out of that, you got a major, major problem. you got a credibility problem. People don't trust you in the future. People get upset with you. I, I think that McDaniels, it's done. The hay's in the barn. And even if the Titans try, it's done. It's over. Because it's going to be very bad form. It's one thing for McDaniels to be in the middle of it, but if his agent's in the middle of it, that impairs the agent's ability to do business in the future. At DAE Goon Squad, is Charlie Weiss coming back to be offensive coordinator in New England? Notre Dame checks are running out. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. At S. Alvashar, what on earth was Sean Payton thinking with those challenges? Yeah, two, two challenges he shouldn't have exercised. The second one especially, that, that Case Keenum, they thought he was down on an incomplete pass that he threw as he was falling to the ground. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. Not that they needed the timeouts late. And if anything, if they had the timeouts, who knows what they would have done? You know, maybe that's where it hurt them. As they got closer and closer to field goal range, maybe they would have run the ball once or twice. Maybe they wouldn't have been trying to work the edges of the field the way they did. Maybe they would have left the Vikings with less time. You know, the Vikings left the Saints with way too much time, 129. And I thought 25 seconds was not enough for the Vikings, but anything less than that would have made it even harder. 15 seconds would have made it harder. Five seconds would have made it impossible. Would have been a Stanford band play to get it done. So not having those timeouts, because that's the thing. He didn't need them, but he could have used them. It, it would have opened up his options. He could have controlled the clock a little bit better down the stretch. And now the Vikings were using their timeouts as well to try to get the ball back. Once it, once it was clear that they were in field goal range, the Vikings started using their timeouts. But I, I don't know what he was thinking on those challenges. Uh, at MD Nichols Esquire is Blake Bortles elite. He sure as hell getting there. At Chris Krapik, is Alex Smith worth a first-round pick? No. He went for a two five years ago. At Rob Air one AS1, does Shermer retain Spagnola as defensive coordinator or look for new blood? And if so, who he might who might he be looking at? Any thoughts on his pick for offensive coordinator? I, I frankly don't. But my chance is, or my guess is, that chances are Shermer has gone in with a full plan. And I don't know what they're going to do with quarterback. Are they going to keep Eli Manning for a year? Did he have to agree to keep Eli Manning for a year to get the job? I think it, it makes Case Keenum following Pat Shermer to his new job a little bit less likely if he gets the Giants' job. But I think after what happened yesterday, the Vikings are going to tag Keenum. I think they have no choice but to tag Keenum. You can't let that guy walk away after he was involved in that play. The, the, the fans are going to lose their minds if you let Keenum walk away. Keenum's got a lifetime pass with the Vikings now. He and Diggs. At Terry Gensler, 14, will Teddy Bridgewater end up in Denver or will he be a backup somewhere? It's going to be interesting to see. I think at best he gets a chance to compete for a starting job and maybe he earns it. Maybe his best play is going to be to stay in Minnesota and be the backup to Case Keenum. I think the most likely of the three Vikings quarterbacks to stick around is Keenum. Bridgewater, too, and I think Bradford's just gone. Maybe Bradford's the guy who follows Shermer wherever he goes. Because, really, Shermer was the guy that helped lay the foundation to get Bradford to Minnesota in the first place. Because Shermer had worked with Bradford in Philly. So even though Keenum is now identified with Shermer, they hadn't worked together before this year. Bradford and Shermer have the history. So if the knee has healed and Keenum can trust that knee, or not Keenum, but Shermer can trust that knee, maybe it's Bradford. At Ryan Dupree, in your opinion, in what ways will the NFL game look different in 15 to 20 years in terms of how we consume it and how the actual gameplay on the field looks? I don't think the gameplay is going to look all that much different. I don't think there's much more the NFL can do to make the game safer than it currently is. I don't know how we're going to consume it in 15 to 20 years. Look, live TV, football on live TV continues to be the way that most people cluster together. Even when there are streaming numbers, the numbers aren't great. But if people need to see the content, they're going to find a way to watch it. I, 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 I think that broadcast TV is always going to have a place with the NFL because the broadcast antitrust exemption that allows the NFL to sell these rights packages as a league and not as individual teams. Because without that broadcast antitrust exemption, the NFL would be sued by the networks for saying, in order to get the Cowboys, you have to take the Browns. Otherwise, it would be every man for himself, every team for itself, selling packages like Notre Dame does. So I think the three-letter networks are going to continue to be a big part of it. And also, I think the NFL is going to want that 
because that's the doorway to the biggest audience. And for the NFL, it's a three-hour infomercial that someone else is paying you to televise. Terry Gensler asks, hypothetically, if Nick Foles was the Jaguars quarterback, how differently would you think about them? I don't know. Not, I, don't, I don't know that they'd gotten as far as they would have. I, I think Blake Bortles is better right now than Nick Foles. I think Nick Foles just did enough on Saturday, and he benefited from the fact that the Falcons were so damn tenuous. They, they were nervous. They were stiff because they were favored. They had everything to lose. You got to go into those games when you're the sixth seed facing the one seed. You got to go into those games with the attitude that we got nothing to lose, and we're going to come here and we're going to smack you in the mouth, and we're, we're going to get you wobbly. We're going to get you flat-footed, and I should have picked the Eagles to win. Because I thought that dynamic was real. I just didn't think that the Eagles would be good enough with Nick Foles to overcome it. All right. I may answer Sam some of these other ones. Um, I may an- Oh, well, yeah, there's... You know what? I'd already posted on Instagram. Faisal Morale uh, had a guess. I'm scrolling down here of the, uh, the Alfa Romeo. I have a tabletop on my poker table in the barn that has an Alfa Romeo logo on it. So maybe maybe that's how Sergio 1D got some of his info, inside information. But to nail the model and the model type, like the, 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 the level, pretty impressive. Inside information for Sergio 1D. All right, thanks for some of your time. Thanks again to Harrison Smith. PFT Live Tuesday morning on NBC Sports Radio and NBCSN and AroundTheClockAProFootballTalk.com. We will talk to you on Tuesday. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.